those who are here. Also, we are uh, going to be continuing in our study of Matthew, and uh, Matthew chapter 10, that's on page number 920 in the Red Pew Bible. If you have uh, ability to follow along, appreciate you doing that. Looking at Matthew 10, 5 through 15, I try it uh, to anchor my teaching in Scripture, and I want you to be able to see where I'm coming uh, from as I teach. And uh, before, before I continue on, I just want to say a public thank you to, to all who have been so supportive to Abby and I in the last number of weeks, praying for us, and also unbeknownst to me, there was a card shower provided for us to help us with extra expenses of travel down to uh, Lebanon County to, uh, over the, these weeks, we will have, and we're very thankful for that. I, I wanted to also share, too, publicly that my mother-in-law has a very strong faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I maybe didn't say that explicitly last Sunday when I asked you all to pray for us, uh, or two Sundays ago, and I wanted to be clear, to be clear that she has a strong hope in the Lord. Um, my sister-in-law, while visiting with her, um, a few weeks ago, observed her joy of expectation of being with Christ, and she said, you know, it's kind of like mom is, is looking forward to a cruise. <laughs> she's, she's getting ready to, she wants, to, she's excited to go and see her Savior and see those who have gone on ahead of her. And so I just want to say uh, publicly, thank you for your love and support to Abby and I and our family during this time. And also, uh, you can all have great confidence that she knows the Lord and uh, looking forward to seeing her Savior. Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 through 15, uh, our text this morning. And uh, I think I should pray uh, before we look into it. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that your love for us, as we just sang, is deep. We cannot fully extend, we cannot fully explore it to the depth that it actually is. We have submersible vehicles that can go to the depths of the, the bottom of the trenches of this earth, but we cannot possibly go to the depth of who you are. Thank you for that love for us, which was manifest in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ that gives us now the freedom, the freedom through the Holy Spirit to cry out, Abba, Father. To cry out, Abba, Father, means that we have confidence that you will hear us when our hearts are overwhelmed and we are torn by our human experience and dealing with sorrows and also dealing with our frustrations over our sin nature that still remains, we can call out to you and know that you hear us. And you will send the comforter to quicken and also to ignite within our hearts, persevering strength to follow you. Lord, we thank you that in Romans 8, there is nothing that can separate us from that love. There is absolutely nothing. And so we thank you, Lord, uh, 
for the precious gift that you've given to us of relationship with you. We are not saved merely for good works. We're saved for relationship, which produces good works. And thank you for that relationship, which is there for us. Father, we, we live in a world that uh, at times feels out of control. Lord, help us not to respond to our feelings, but that we would respond to our faith that you do all things well and that you are in charge and you are directing things towards your final goal. There is a day in which you will come and set wrongs right. You will bring uh, your saints with you and you will rule and you will reign and every knee shall bow and confess that you are Lord. Father, may we in our own hearts bend that knee. May we not resist that temptation to think that we are self-sufficient sovereigns of our own destinies, but that we would humbly recognize your glory, the glory that is yours, and give that to you now. May we humbly follow the teaching that is in your word, not think that we have a better way of handling our lives. Lord, may we humble ourselves and be true disciples, that we would humble ourselves and think carefully about what you have told us and be obedient to it. So, Father, as we look into the word this morning, I ask for uh, ability to be clear and to be able to express the truths as you would have wanted them to be expressed. And I ask this in your precious name. Amen. If the harvest is huge, it's huge, and the laborers are few, then we ought to be humble about mission. We ought to have humility to pray. We ought to have the humility to accept our own lack of skill. We have to have the humility to listen to Jesus. We also need the humility to obey Jesus. To be a congregation, the tabernacle needs humility to be able to carry out what we have on the front of our bulletin, to be a community, a joyful community of believers who shares God's saving grace with the world. We need humility to look into the scriptures to assess how we can carry that joy to others in a way that God wants us to and also will bless. To be that community, we need humility to hear what Jesus has to say about being a missionary outpost in a world of darkness. To be a missionary outpost in Honesdale and to partner with other like-minded congregations in Wayne County, we have to take seriously our outpost, our embassy-like quality, seriously. We have to accept orders that come from him and not just go rogue and do our own thing. 
as an embassy, uh, a physical earthly embassy, just as an embassy represents the values of a country inside another nation, we as the church represent the values of our king in a world that is hostile towards those values. And we as believers need to take seriously our responsibility as followers of Christ, taking the truth of Jesus to a needy world, we have to represent those values uh, faithfully. Jesus is our king, and we need to seriously consider what he has said. There may be a way that seems right in our own eyes, but we have to be careful that we're not following the inclinations of our own hearts, but clearly follow the dictates of our king. We need to take the time to listen to Jesus, and by listening to Jesus, it will improve our capacity for mission. If you're coming into this service and wondering where the pastor is, we're in the midst of a, a teaching, paragraph by paragraph, in which Jesus is assembling his disciples and getting them ready to go into mission, and he's teaching them the essentials. He has presented to them his own missionary heart, his compassion for the lost. He's assembled his, his 12, and now he's in the leading, we're in the leading section here of his sermon, kind of an introductory uh, a, a teaching on mission. And so, this morning, as we walk through this paragraph, we're going to see instructions about how to carry out the mission. And so, the first teaching point that Jesus brings to, to us as hearers is that we need to know where to go in mission. Where do we go in mission? In verse 5 through 6, I see this emphasis here. Now, this is not everything that Jesus has said about mission. Uh, when we get to the end of this book, he will also talk about going into all the world and teaching all nations. But here, there is a specific Jewish emphasis that we need to consider. Let's read verses 5 and 6. It says, These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, we have a curious question here. Why? Why not the Gentiles? Uh, why not the Samaritans? Why is this an exclusive instruction to the lost sheep of Israel? Well, there's some geographic considerations, but there are also some theological considerations that we might consider. The region of Galilee was surrounded by Gentile influence. If you can imagine the north-south uh, uh, expanse of Palestine and Israel, in the north, the Jews had to go south through a region called Samaria and get to get to the, the lower uh, Judean territory where their fellow Jews lived. There was the Galilean Jews and there was the, the, the um, Judean Jews, Jewish populations. And really, what Jesus was saying here, it was not a prohibition to evangelize Gentiles or Samaritans should they be in the crowds with, with other listeners, but this was instruction not to go directly into the towns and territory, at least not for the time being. 
after the resurrection, as I said, Jesus will expand the territory and say, you know, now I want you to go to Jerusalem, I want you to go to Samaria, and I want you to go to the ends of the earth. And the Great Commission that we love to, to uh, and find inspiration in, which says uh, that we're to go to all nations, that's coming. But I think there's an important teaching point here for us. Jesus believed that God's economy of salvation was for the Jew first. Not just chronologically, as in like sequences of time, but first always. Jesus did not immediately skip over the Jews to go to the more receptive Gentile audiences. Jesus went to the lost sheep of Israel first, and it's noteworthy that Paul also carried on the same practice. The destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD actually did not stop the church's mission to go to the Jews. Jews outside of Palestine read, wrote, thought in Greek categories of thought. They were called Hellenistic Jews, and Hellenistic Jews were a significant part of the church's expansion through the first five centuries of the church. God did not neglect His people who, who maybe had become more secular in their mindset, but were still ethnically tied to David. There was still an interest in making sure that they were cared for and that the truth about His Messiahship was presented to them and given them that opportunity to, to respond. Who are this, what is this lost capacity with these sheep that are in Israel? Well, we had entered into a, a, a topic of missions in chapter 9. In chapter 9, Jesus actually looked out upon the crowds and he was compelled by compassion for these who were harassed and they were helpless and he calls them as sheep without a shepherd. And so Jesus is, is, is saying here that within the Jewish community, there are people who are being harassed. There are people who the religious elite has made it almost impossible for them to, to have relationship with God. They were creating all of these things that they had to be compliant in in order to enter into relationship with God. They were oppressed. There was the lepers, there was the women, there was the possessed, there were the blind that were marginalized on the outside of society. These were the people that really had no government safety net. And I think it's important for us to realize, though, we live in a very different time period than the time period in which Jesus was talking about the lost, the harassed, the helpless, we have a lot of people in our community that would be, we might consider to be in poverty level, where the government has actually helped, but also hurt people. We have a barely making it kind of class of people today who are not really challenged to improve their lot in life. They have no real incentive to improve themselves. Instead, they're overloaded with all kinds of freedoms, and I've mentioned this in the past, that they have so much freedom and means to satisfy the basest of urges like addictions, 
at-risk behaviors and, fr and frivolous choices. So when we look around and we, we try to take the scriptures and try to put them in our own context, sometimes we, we misread what's going on in our strategic mission. Sometimes it's hard to know what to do because we, we want to be very compassionate towards people and we want to know with whom do we do mission. We want to be um, productive in taking the gospel to people who are in genuine need. And so verses 7 through 8 are helpful for us as we think through what to do in mission. Verses 7 through 8, I'll read those now. And Jesus says, And proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You receive without paying, give without pay. Um, and really, this, this point stops with that casting out of demons. And here they're given particular instruction, and I believe that the method of mission in these verses, to properly contextualize it in our era, is that we are to go speaking the truth and also serving our fellow people. Speaking and serving as we are going. We are to be saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's a really startling phrase. It's, it's actually kind of like, this is breaking news. It may not be on your radar, but you need to know that Jesus is coming soon, and you need to prepare your life for His return. This is the time in which we live. It's an opportune time to confess and turn and repent and leave patterns of sin and trust the Savior. This is what we are called to speak and to say, but we are also called to serve. Uh, raising the dead, I, I, I kind of wonder, what would this have been like in that first century when, when, when they saw a dead person with no pulse, awaken. How dramatically impressive that would be. It's not like, um, I don't know if you've seen The Princess Bride, but it's not like Miracle Max who supposed that Wesley was mostly dead. These people were without a pulse. There was a flat line. You know, we might wish that we would see more power today like that. And I think it's important, though, to remember that Jesus was empowering them for validation of their message about Jesus. And I, I emphasize the emphasis of service because God does heal through sincere prayer of godly people today, but he doesn't anoint people as mighty men or mighty women that you could say, go see this healer. God doesn't operate in that capacity today, but he does heal people. Nevertheless, we offer a very powerful truth 
The power that we present is that Jesus resurrects people from the tyranny of death. That is a powerful good news. Death is not the final word on any illness that we might be challenged with in this world. Jesus does care for the souls, and he does care for the bodies of people, and it's important for us as Christians also to be caring for people, have compassion for people who do have illnesses and hurts. Compassion is an essential quality. The church is equipped with compassion and the message of hope of eternal life and also, if God would will, to bring people a healing experience. And one of the ways that the early church grew was actually through their emphasis upon compassion. When disasters struck in the early centuries of the church, the Christians were better able to cope than their pagan neighbors because they had hope of eternal life. There were pandemics in the early centuries that devastated communities. And especially the pagans, as they lost family members, began to feel very unsettled and perhaps maybe being restrained because of their normal networks of having family, of having a community, all being taken away. They became very receptive to the community of faith. I want to give you a, a historic example that if you kind of think about what we've gone through in the last three years, it has some great applicability. During the plague of Galen, that Galen was a doctor who, who um, in the second century kind of described this kind of plague, and it, it struck first in the army of Versus during the campaigns in which he was fighting in the, the Far East, kind of in, in the... In, on the borders of, of India. And in 165, this plague ravished. It went through the military. And as the military came home, because they couldn't complete their mission, they brought the disease back with them to the main populations in the Roman Empire. In fact, that plague was so severe that Marcus Aurelius estimated that between 7 and 10% of many cities lost people. Excuse me, let me put that another way. That in many cities, 7 to 10% of the population died from that plague. In fact, he talked about carts and wagons hauling dead from the cities. So many people died that some cities and villages in Italy and in the provinces totally abandoned them and they fell into ruin as, as wild animals started to take over those, those communities. Distress and disorganization was so severe that military campaigns had to be put on hold and the death toll was even higher into the 10 and 12% range in rural communities. It is human experience that when crisis occurs, people ask questions. They ask, why? Why is this happening? Why, why are they dying and why not 
why not me? Why does the world exist anyway? What's going to happen next? And, and there's this what can we do sense that kind of comes over people. And I think that to say, you know, that, that, well, the reason I survived and not someone else survived is merely luck, that's kind of superficial. Secular humanism is incapable of defining what a woman is. How much better will they be to tell us of what like life is like on the other side of death? Our faith has answers. And while Christians did not in themselves all escape the plagues, they reacted much differently than their lost counterparts. I want to read just a couple of sentences from a historical reflection by Dionysus, who was a historian who reflected on this time period. He said this, the heathen behaved in the very opposite way at the first onset of the disease. They pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treated unburied corpses as dirt hoping thereby to avert the spread and contagion of the fatal disease, but do what they might, they found it difficult to escape. Now Dionysus is, is writing, and he's, he's now going to contrast, so that was the pagan response. They, they were so petrified of, of, of dying that they were not even compassionately caring for even their own family. They were tossing them in the streets. Dionysus wrote of the, his, the heroic nursing efforts of the Christians this way. He said, most of our brothers showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely, happily. For they were infected by others with the disease. And it was these different patterns that, that demonstrated a different kind of character in Christians. It, they had something that the pagan world desired, but they didn't know how to, to have it. Uh, one pagan priest complained to a late Roman emperor in, the, in that second century time period. He complained that that the pagans themselves needed to have the virtues of Christians. Even if they pretended to have benevolence, they needed to at least, at least carry it out in duty. That's remarkable. And I, I'm, I'm emphasizing this because we have something to offer the world even if we don't have the the miraculous capacity that the apostles have, we have the compassion of Christ because we have the hope of eternal life. We do not have to be fearful of our circumstances or our environment. We serve the King of kings and Lord of lords, and we have something that pagans don't have. Unbelievers in our community, even nominal Christians, people who claim to be Christians who maybe aren't genuine Christians. So we want to ask ourselves a further question 
So what to do in mission? We, we, we take compassion to the lost. How do we do that? How, how, how does that go about? How do we do mission then? Verse uh, 8, uh, the last half, and then into chap, uh, verse 10. Let me continue reading. I'll start at the beginning of verse 8. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You receive without praying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts. No bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff for the laborer deserves his food. And I believe that you can see in this the principle that the ministry of the church should never be for a commercial for-profit enterprise. It didn't cost the disciples for Jesus' help, and so therefore it ought not cost those around us to receive help from Christ. And preaching and healing, if you think about it, if there's like a fee attached to it, it totally becomes inauthentic. I mean, even like the, you know, send in, send in on the, to the number on the screen, you know, it just becomes inauthentic. It's not real. And the emphasis on the nonprofit enterprise here has actually caused some to interpret that the word acquiring of money, the acquiring of the gold and the copper and, and such, was referring to the idea of fundraising as one goes. And there's a restriction on the, the backpack and the extra clothing. It speaks of traveling light rather than carrying extra beyond what you need. Now, I believe that there is a balance to this because in Luke's gospel at the um, Last Supper, Jesus was preparing his disciples for a different time period in which he wouldn't be there with them physically. And he encouraged them to, to if they, no one had a sword, to buy a sword and to get a staff and, 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 and prepare a little money for your, for your expedition. Um, but there's, there's kind of a balance here, I think, between the two of, of, of not, not doing mission with the mindset of like we're accumulating treasure on earth, but that we're using prudence in the process, that we, we prepare and we use some financial prudence in how we do carry out mission. And there is a balance there. How do we do mission? We have to make the people the most important part of our mission, not the means to do that mission. The one will follow the other. There's a fourth principle here that I want us to look at in verse 11 to 13. With whom do we do mission? With whom? Verse 11 to 13, uh, we read this. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. Remarkably, with all the gifts of like healing and um, ability to raise people from the dead, they weren't given, a, a, if you will, a supernatural awareness of who would respond to their teaching. Uh, they had to dig a little bit in the relationship to assess whether or not they would be responsive or not 
they weren't able to immediately discern. It's really remarkable. And I see in this that there is a, we need an indiscriminate broadcasting of seed to everyone. But over time, we might have to limit our interactions to, to pick up those who are being more responsive to the teaching that we offer. There is an assessment word that Jesus uses. It's the word worthy. Worthy. It's used three times, uh, uh, verses 1 through 10, but it's also used in verse 11, 12, and 13. Um, the, the, a worthy person is a person, actually, who we might say is receptive. They're, in a, they're receptive to what we're giving them. They're eager. They're willing. They, they don't put you off because they want it. And when they hear you speak, they might not first understand what you're saying, but they're at least willing to put their pride away and listen. Now, I had earlier talked about the lost sheep of Israel as being those who are harassed and those who are helpless. And we have sometimes in our minds this instinct, and we ought to have this instinct to go to the poor and sometimes we assume that the poor will always be the ones that will be building the church. And this actually is something that is an old theory of how Christianity developed through the centuries, that it was the lower classes, and it was like a movement and uprising of the proletariat. However, this theory is shifting, it's shifting to what I believe is a more accurate view that the church was composed of a cross-section of society. Early Christians were literate, they were inclusive of upper-class people, women of high standing, artisans, merchants, yes, even lawyers. But there were also lower classes too. Yes, we see names of slaves or, or, or people that you, could, you would probably associate with a, more of a poverty. But the church at its beginning was not exclusively a proletariat uprising. No, it was a cross-section of all people. That proletarian thesis actually was pushed by liberal theologians liberal theologians who were sympathetic to Marx's teaching in the early 1900s. And it's taken us a little while to come out from underneath of it to understand that the worthy people are people who can be found in any class of people. They can be found in every social economic group of people. Jesus said the, the, the harvest is huge. It's not limited to one group of people. It's everywhere. And the most likely people to respond to the gospel may not actually be the, be the people who you think. It's so very common to think that people who have had, you know, a moral upbringing, they're like decent folks, may be the most receptive of peoples. But stable families who have built a cultural identity for generations on nominal religious rituals can often be the least receptive to the truth of the gospel because there's nothing shaking their world. Studies have actually shown that people are more willing to embrace a new faith when there is 
they're seeing religious inactivity and they become discontent. They, they leave those, those, what they would see as corrupt religious establishments and they identify themselves as none on surveys. They're the ones who actually are more likely to respond to Christ if they see genuine faith lived out before them. This may be totally counterintuitive, but there are actually no real seekers looking for a new religion. Rather, they stumble upon people who at first they might think are a little goofy because they, they're living outside of what everyone else is doing. And then they start looking a little closer at them and they recognize that they have something that they don't have. They've lost the bonds of family. They don't have the religious center that anchors their soul like these people do. And when disease hits a community, those odd ones were actually serving the community at the expense of their own lives. And pagans began to realize that they were missing something that Christians had. They had a peace that passes all human comprehension. See, Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray, therefore, that the Lord of the harvest, that he would send forth. That word send forth is like cast out. That, that, that God would ignite within the souls of people a boldness to share the love of Christ. Going about looking for people who are longing for the love that only God can give. This is how we ought to be thinking, I think, about doing mission. So, looking for worthy people is an important part of the process of following what Jesus says. If you tarry long with people who are not demonstrating receptivity, you may actually be going against what Christ has asked you to do. And I know that can be difficult to hear, but it's not our wisdom, it's his wisdom. How do we handle rejection, though, in mission? Verse 13, the last half through verse 15, it's important for us to see this. Um, in verse 13, halfway through, and if, or at the beginning really, and if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it, but if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that town or house. It's truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Inevitably, we're going to meet with people that the message of grace through faith is not going to be accepted. And the greeting of peace, which is often in the Catholic tradition, that greeting of peace, here it is the measure of a true and genuine relationship. There's going to be a lot of people who will not want Christ and they will not really want to follow the commands of Christ. There'll be crowds that will come looking for relationship and meaning for their life. But in terms of giving of yourself and all of your energies, Jesus is instructing us 
and telling us there's going to be a smaller group who will be really willing to follow Christ's teachings that are in the Bible. And whenever the gospel is preached, there is a kind of last judgment that occurs. People determine their destiny by their receptivity or their unreceptivity to the message. Now, ultimately, the last chapter of the lives have not been written. But there is the possibility that in their rejection, they may be writing off God for eternity. And we must realize that even though we continue to show love and care and compassion, we have to recognize that there will be rejection. There are some, as Jesus says, who are not worthy of more effort to provide them with the truth of the gospel. It might be just all your job is to do is to show them John 3.16. You've done your responsibility, at least they have a witness that they must take into account. They have been told about Christ. But we cannot outdo Jesus. Jesus basically said, there's a time to hold them, and there's a time to fold them. It, time is just too short to spend inordinate amounts of time trying to corral a donkey into a cage that he doesn't want to go into. While we have compassion for people, we have to have the realism as we carry the mission, and we need to take the time to listen to what Jesus says, and I believe it will improve our mission. I know the last two or three years have really disquieted our country and the response by our government has created divisions within families. There are plenty of hurting people looking for meaning. They're looking for community that's real. And they're ready to be invited into a community of faith, and they're hungry. They're looking for this. We need to take the time to think about people in our sphere of relationships. I don't have the relationships that's, that you have. I have different kinds of relationships, but we need to be prepared then to serve others. Technology is isolating people. It, it promised greater connectivity, but is actually isolating people from one another from meaningful relationships. Old family bonds are breaking down, and it's now time for the church to rise and shine, to bring hope to a dying world. And I would encourage us to take seriously the possibility that we would be a joyful community of believers who share God's saving grace with the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for time in your word this morning. It teaches us some pretty basic things that maybe we have overlooked in time. Some provide to us new strategies to reach the world, and, and yet maybe we're overlooking the very basic things that you have, have provided for us as a blueprint. And I pray, Father, that we would be praying that Christians would be ignited, that we would be bold, and that we would demonstrate our peace 
to the world that we, we have confidence in your coming return and that there's nothing in this world that can destroy us ahead of your time. And we have nothing to fear. And so, Father, I pray that we would be a, a people that would be communicating love to one another, have wisdom as we approach the mission. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of the Holy Spirit, which makes it possible for us to, to live in this capacity. And I pray that we would not lean on our own understanding, that we would, in all our ways, acknowledge you and re realize that you will direct our paths. And so pray, Father, that you would give us uh, great boldness and confidence in these days. May you be glorified through fruitfulness of your congregation. In your name we pray. Amen.